The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Concluding my look at the David Michelinie Todd McFarlane run of The Amazing Spider-Man. The first four parts of which can be found in episodes 165, 170, 174 and 177. Strap yourselves in kids, this is going to be a long one. Amazing Spider-Man issue 320 was the first part of the now annual six-part summer blowout. This story, entitled The Assassination Plot, kicked off in issues cover dated late September 1989. Part 1, License Invoked, was presumably a reference to the recent James Bond film License Revoked. However, the Bond film was retitled License to Kill before release, so the title's gag falls flat, if gag it was intended to be. The cover is a full-figure shot of Paladin, the gun-for-hire who Spidey last met in Peter Parker, issue 106. It's also a nod to the old TV show Have Gun, Will Travel, with the cover copy Have Gun, Will Kill. Peter is working in the lab, testing how to enhance the durability and strength of his webbing, when he's interrupted by Dr. Swan, who is understandably perturbed that Peter isn't performing the neutron observation procedure he should be undertaking. Peter stuffs his new webbing in his pocket and tells Swan he'll get right on that neutron thing. Um, but can it be tomorrow? Because my shift's over for the day. He's a lazy, work-shy fop and no mistake. Michelini has Peter point out that Peter's spider sense should perhaps have warned him of the interruption, but it's of no use when there's nowhere to hide. I question that his spider sense would have tingled at all in this situation, because Peter was never in any real danger. It's once again proof that if you got three Spider-Man writers in a room and asked them to define his spider sense, you'd probably get three different answers. Peter snaps the new web formula into his web cartridges and dons his costume to go out and test it. Once again, Peter falls foul of a traditional comic stereotype. He's a scientist who doesn't actually run tests on the things he invents. I understand field testing is a thing, but given the point is to save his life, actually testing this stuff first may help in that regard. It doesn't help that McFarlane pays no attention whatsoever to what he's drawing from panel to panel, with Peter's goggles changing size and shape, and the clasp that tightens the goggles altering from one panel to the next. A clumsily inserted subplot follows. MJ takes a call from Harry about helping he and Liz move at the weekend, but May is cagey about how long MJ's on the phone, and thus a major plot point cometh. Elsewhere, Spider-Man happens upon some bodies just lying around the Eat Well Caterers building. His Spider-Sense doesn't warn him of any danger, nor does he hear or see any nefarious deeds. He just happens upon some prone bodies. They aren't dead, 
just unconscious, and Spider-Man spots the culprit. Paladin. He and Spidey exchange pleasantries and some bullets, but before they can fully converse, the next guard shift arrive. It seems like terrible planning on Paladin's part. There's a funny panel of Spider-Man playing Leap Thug and bouncing off a couple of the goons' heads, but to escape, we see Spider-Man pull some crates over with his new webbing to block the passageway of the guards. However, the art makes it look like he drops the crates on their heads, which would probably kill them. Miscommunication, possibly, between artist and writer, or McFarlane not giving a shit if his heroes kill people. You must decide, lovely listener. Spider-Man's new webbing is too strong for the pinch valves in his web shooters to deal with, and Paladin escapes. This was a lovely little touch, actually. I like that he has these pinch valve things, and it leads to a funny moment when Spider-Man is yanked backwards like a dog who reaches the full length of his lead. Still, the webbing proved its worth, and Spider-Man starts to wonder why a caterer needs such well-armed security. He does some further digging, which reveals the crates were for a reception at the Waldorf Astoria. Peter heads for home and discovers Murray Jane exercising to a Jane Fonda workout video, something that was inexplicably popular at the time. The exercises are an excuse for MJ to flash her cleavage for the prepubescent pre-teen audience, which presumably had the desired effect. MJ manages to wrangle some tickets to the party at the Astoria. Somehow, you know, in that same way that somehow Palpatine survived, and she gets herself and Peter on the guest list. This was incredibly contrived. Murray Jane still knows people in high enough places to get her on an exclusive guest list at incredibly short notice, but she can't get any kind of job? Everyone she knows is so scared of Jonathan Caesar that they won't even give her a gig as Joey Tribbiani's hand model? Really? At the party, Peter rocks a tuxedo and MJ is wearing a cobalt blue party dress, which highlights that her ass defies gravity. So the Jane Fonda workout is clearly working for her. Peter spots Paladin, who he recognises after he saw her at Dazzler's place back in Marvel Team-Up, and he takes off to change into Spider-Man, leaving his wife and her gravity-defying ass behind because Spider-Man is a person who really has his priorities in place. Spider-Man follows Paladin and two goons to an import car dealership, and it's time for the requisite fight of the issue. The fight is well choreographed by McFarlane, although having Paladin survive a direct hit from a T-90 tank is a bit much, even for comics. Similar to the earlier complaint about Peter's goggles, Paladin's goggles also appear to change shape and size a few times in the final few pages. In true Spider-Man fashion, it all goes tits up rather quickly. Paladin is working for Silver Sable and her country, Simcaria, is the target of a conspiracy being led by a man named Carlton Drake, a criminal businessman that Spider-Man first met back in issue 299. So Michelini is finally circling around to the dangling plot thread of the Life Foundation. Paladin was after information about the conspiracy from a man named Chicane, but Spider-Man's interruption cocked all that up. I did like Chicane's name, though, chicanery meaning to be up to no good. To make up for this error, Spider-Man offers to work for Silver Sable for free to help her figure out what the conspiracy is and who else is involved. 
Sable needs to do some research on Chicane, so she drops Spider-Man off in Queens, telling him to get in touch. He does this the very next day, but inadvertently overhears some disturbing news as Aunt May has picked up the phone before him. She only has six months to live. It's always interesting to look at stuff like that, isn't it? From the perspective of now. That back in the day, if you had two phones in a house and you picked the phone up while somebody was on the phone, you could listen into their conversation. That's quite intriguing. And dated, in many ways. In other respects, though, it's kind of hard to judge this as a one-off issue. It's a six-part story. And as such, probably best to take the wait-and-see approach and see how all of this pans out. Issue 321 has another of McFarlane's poster covers designed to make Big Bank on the aftermarket. Spider-Man is performing funky hand tricks whilst hanging upside down. Silver Sable and Paladin are behind him and dance around waving their guns. Put them in shadow and it's a James Bond title sequence. Underwar opens with our hero enjoying beating up people, which doesn't seem a terribly characteristic Peter Parker moment. He further compounds this reckless behaviour by throwing a fully webbed-up man through a freight car, a move that certainly looks like something that could break his neck. Apparently, Peter is letting the news about Aunt May get to him, which doesn't seem terribly responsible, not given his powers, but at least it's an explanation. Granted, Paladin guns down people in cold blood in front of Spider-Man, so morality doesn't seem to be on this Peter Parker's radar. It appears Paladin and Spidey are here locating information on the whereabouts of Chicane, the man Sable thinks is responsible for the threat to world peace. I'm going to pause here and say that thus far this threat to world peace doesn't seem to be something that has been adequately explained. Sable says it's a thing and that it can destabilise the situation in Simcaria, but we've only got Sable's word for that. It's not like she's ever been a true blue-white hat in previous appearances. So I'm not really buying why Spider-Man has been brought into this, or even bought into it. His connection to the Life Foundation is specious as well. We haven't heard hide nor her of them for 20 issues, so they've hardly been uppermost in his mind. What is uppermost in his mind is Aunt May, and in a rare moment of actually confronting his problems, Peter outright calls her out on the heart diagnosis. It turns out Nathan is the one on the chopping block and May is perfectly fine. We aren't given time to register this sad blow to the Spider-Man supporting cast as on the next page MJ is wandering around in her skimpy night were talking about an upcoming audition she has for a bit part in a soap opera. McFarlane must have thought we'd have found this conversation terribly boring as he focuses quite a bit on MJ's parts choosing to focus on a shot of her almost naked arse. The next day, Peter, MJ and a few others are helping Harry and Liz Osborne move into a new apartment in Soho. What, super rich Harry and Liz Osborne can't afford a moving service? There's a panel where someone who looks like Flash Thompson is wiring up Harry's TV and there are more wires in that thing than a circuit box at the end of your street. Harry, it seems, owns the building, a three-storey piece of prime real estate in the middle of New York City. But he and Liz and their new baby have chosen to live on the second floor, despite the penthouse flats being free. 
This didn't make a lot of sense to me. They've got a new baby. So either the first floor, where they don't have to faff around with elevators to get to their apartment due to having the, the baby and prams and all the assorted gubbins that comes with having a baby, like having to buy nappies and formula and clothes and all that other bollocks. Or the third floor penthouse apartment would have made sense as well, because that's up and away from the street, presumably allowing for more peace and quiet. But no, Harry decides to live on the second floor. It also makes no sense that Harry owns this piece of prime real estate and just had it standing there doing nothing, and indeed has two floors doing nothing, even after he and Liz has moved into the building. Of course, the penthouse flat is free for reasons of plot. Harry offers it to Peter and Murray Jane for mates rates, a 25% reduction in rent. For a hard luck hero, Peter sure seems to get a lot of breaks. For his part, McFarlane seems to have misplaced his model sheet for Liz Allen, as the person Harry is currently married to looks nothing like Liz as she has been portrayed over the last 25 years. Maybe she's been recast with another actor. Peter calls Silver again, and within hours he, her and Paladin are flying down to New Jersey, the new location of the Life Foundation, where they learn of their expansion. The Life Foundation aren't just making escape houses for people for when the ultimate revolution comes anymore. No, 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 no. They're making entire cities replete with malls, gyms and everything else the young and upwardly mobile require. The facility is protected by the Protectors, appropriately enough. These zombified guards have little to no mental control. Paladin and Spidey stop the protectors, and Sable finds out that the Life Foundation are trying to kill the King of Simcaria and then hide in America. Sable heads to Simcaria, offering Spider-Man $1,000 a day to join her. Spider-Man accepts this offer after spending most of this issue literally condemning Sable's methods. As if to underscore Sable's the ends justify the means approach, she uses drugs to coerce the Life Foundation members into talking, and so Peter's protestations ring quite hollow. Peter has always had to balance making money with his conscience, but this feels really off. Part 3 of the assassination plot continues into Amazing Spider-Man issue 322. McFarlane's cover sees Spidey throwing a bunch of goons around. It's fine, but the issue itself is already off to a rough start, with the colouring being credited to Don T. Ask. Don T. Ask? Don't ask! Holy obvious alias, Batman! Spidey, Sable, and her team of rent-a-guns, the Wild Pack, arrive in Simcaria and kick some ass in their quest to discover more about the upcoming coup. But it's a waste of time. The men are common criminals and of no use to Sable, who takes Spider-Man and heads back to the Simcarium castle. Being back at home with Aunt May must be agreeing with Spider-Man as he's put on an awful lot of weight in panel 2 of page 2. Granted, this being a comic, those meaty thighs and rounded buttocks are a mere memory by the next page. And let's be honest, if we've learned anything, it's that consistency isn't really McFarlane's bag. Spider-Man is impressed by the pomp and pageantry of Simcaria's celebrations, but he's still been all high and mighty about Sable's methods. This is extremely rich, coming from a paid mercenary, something Sable points out to our sanctimonious hero. This isn't just a commemoration of 500 years of a royal bloodline, but also to honour King Stephen's recent engagement, ensuring that bloodline will go on for at least one more generation. 
The political shenanigans continue as Spider was introduced to Prime Minister Limka, a man generally believed to be inept. So Sable says they will be staying with King Stefan for the duration as she turns down Limka's generous offer to stay with him. Sable is correct not to trust Limka, who is working with the Ultimatum, who want to dissolve national identities for some reason. Major Veal, W-E-I-L, seems to be the main contact for Limka within the Ultimatum. But Limka has his own ambitions. He wants the death of King Stefan before Stefan can produce an offspring. Limka thinks he can abolish the monarchy and then turn Simkara into a democracy with he as ultimate ruler. I don't think that's how democracy works. But whatever, you know. Each country has their own way of doing things, right? After the subplots, MJ auditioning for her soap opera, we return to Simkaria where Spider-Man is attending the Jubilee Gala, complete with the tux on over his Spider-Man costume. This is genuinely a funny visual, because it's incongruous, but it's also taking the piss out of an established comic book trope. How many times, for example, have you seen Batman with a costume over his costume? It's also a nice character beat, with Spider-Man bemoaning this job. He has to be Spider-Man all the time, so there's no downtime where he gets to be Peter Parker or even take off the mask. And the lovely listener is as perfect a summation as to why superhero stories are better with a secret ID. It's Peter we're here for. Peter we care about. Hell, it's Peter Peter cares about. Sure, the action and the are fun, but if we don't connect with the characters, the people behind the masks, what's the point? The conversation about patriotism is interesting as well. Spider-Man has never been a card-carrying flag waver like Captain America, as he himself admits in this issue. But he's not about to turn traitor. Sable is willing to die to protect her country. Spider-Man wonders if he'd go that far. Not only does this scene hint at deeper levels to Sable, it also sets up a thread to be tugged at later. The ultimatum attack and Spider-Man and Sable stop them. Limka is killed before he can kill the king by a stereotypically 90s shadowy figure that looks like Sabretooth. Probably because it's Sabretooth, and Spider-Man and Sable save the king, but fail to prevent the murder of his bride-to-be. There's a nice twist in the story in that the Prime Minister may have been the target all along, rather than the king. But we didn't really need to kill the fiancé, especially as she's not, nor has she been, nor will she be, in any way important to the story. The death of the Prime Minister accomplishes the destabilisation of Simkaria, the point of the story. So the future Queen's death serves no narrative purpose other than a pointless fridging, an example of Spider-Man failing miserably once again to save a perfectly innocent person. The art is also variable. As usual, McFarlane's large panels and full-page splashes are pretty good, in an art book kind of way, but the storytelling is sloppy and under-rendered in later pages, like the bi-weekly schedule is really starting to take its toll. There's a further twist that leads Sable to believe that the CIA may have killed Limka, which heads into issue 323 and an appearance by Captain America, who pretty much takes centre stage on the cover. I'm going to have to take another pause here, lovely listener, to be brutally honest with you. I've kind of lost interest in this story. For one, these political shenanigans just aren't Spider-Man's bag. He's already admitted himself in this story that he's not the most 
patriotic of heroes. And that's largely because the stuff he deals with tends to be not as lofty as the goals of characters like, say, Captain America or Superman. He's not carrying the weight of a nation on his shoulders. This doesn't mean he's a commie pinko. He just lives his own life and he tends not to be all big picture about things. It also doesn't help that Spider-Man is a tad out of character. A problem throughout this run, not just this story. Yes, Spider-Man needs money. And yes, he sells pictures of himself. And yes, he has, on occasion, perhaps, maybe, stretched the legitimacy of his pictures to breaking point. But he's never been a hired mercenary. Which, make no mistake, is what he is in this story. And Sable pointing that out doesn't make it any less egregious. Secondly, there's a curious disconnect with the character of Solo who appears in this issue. Solo's tagline, while I live, terror dies, is not only dumb, terror isn't a thing, it's not alive, ergo it can't die, but he kills terrorists. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, well, what's wrong with that? What's the difference between him and the Punisher? Well, there isn't a difference, they're both murderers. So why is the Punisher given a pass and this guy isn't? How is he defining terrorist versus the standard criminal the Punisher kills? There's no real answer. If the Punisher is portrayed as an anti-hero, then so is Solo. Or conversely, if Solo is a murderer, then so is the Punisher. Anyway, the CIA send representatives to Simcaria to speak to Sable to try and sort this mess out. Captain America also joins in because the US and Simcaria are buddies. So what would be gained by killing their Prime Minister? Sable points out that the US was enemies with Iran, but they still sold them weapons. Spider-Man tries to ease the tension in the room, but Sable tells him to butt out. His payment is at the embassy. He can leave now. Okay, I'm sorry about this, but Spider-Man should leave now. This is bigger than him. He's already admitted that this isn't his ballywick. Leave. Go home, dude. Go back to your wife with a gravity-defying ass. Of course, he doesn't, because this story would end, and as much as that is fervently to be desired, we have two more issues of this year's summer bi-weekly schedule. At least Michelini comes up with a legitimate reason for him to stick around when we do get to the last issue. Cap, Sable, Spider-Man and the Wild Pack locate Veal and fight Ultimatum soldiers. They win and Cap endorses torture, leaving Sable to talk, in speech marks, to a soldier to get the information required. At least Spidey has the decency to look uncomfortable. They find out that Sabretooth is behind the death of the Prime Minister and relations between Simcaria and America take a drastic turn for the worse. The cover to issue 324 was by McFarlane, but the schedule catches up with Todd and the penciling duties are handed off to Eric Larson. The cover has Sabretooth taking centre stage. We open with Spidey preventing the Ultimatum soldiers from blowing up Ellis Island, historic gateway for people looking for a new and hopefully better life. Ultimatum believes that symbols and borders need to be destroyed to bring people together. Spider-Man is not convinced, but before he can talk further, Solo shows up and kills all the soldiers Spider-Man just caught. Instead of being appalled by Solo's actions, Spider-Man suggests a team-up. No, I'm not kidding. No, he really does suggest team-up with this guy who just literally gunned people down in cold blood that Spider-Man had already stopped and were no threat. This after Spider-Man lectured the Ultimatum soldiers about the innocent people who would have died had their attempt to blow up Ellis Island succeeded. 
Doesn't death mean anything to you? He asks the soldiers. Well, apparently it doesn't mean much to Spider-Man either. In fact, Spider-Man is being a right old hypocrite in this story. Not only is he accepting Silver Sable's money for being a mercenary for hire, he's incredibly casual about men being slaughtered in front of him. Spider-Man should have webbed Solo up with the bad guys and be done with him, but he's more upset that they can't help him locate Tola Veal, the ultimatum officer, who masterminded the Simkarian PM's murder. Meanwhile, Cap and Sable are pursuing Sabretooth. Cap wants him alive, Sable does not. This thematically leads into Spider-Man and Solo, who also seem to have different opinions on killing, although Spider-Man doesn't seem to be terribly broken up about any of that. After a night of sexy shenanigans with Mary Jane, Spider-Man attacks the Metropolitan Museum with Solo. This is where Veal is hiding out. Spidey convinces Solo to not kill Veal because of that whole pesky war between the US and Simcaria thing, and tries to get him to talk. Veal doesn't tell them anything they don't already know. With Sabretooth dead, <laughs> yeah right, the war drums are still beating. Larson seems to be putting in a McFarlane impersonation here instead of being Larson, but it doesn't quite work. Larson is cartoonier, and whilst he tries to ape McFarlane with copious shots of Murray Jane's round ass and Spidey's contorted poses, thankfully not at the same time, they don't work when someone other than McFarlane does them. Spider-Man looks like he's going to break his legs, and MJ looks less glamorous, more Peggy Bundy from Married with Children and less Roby from Friday the 13th, the series. And if you got those references, well done, you're as old as I am. It doesn't help that I just don't care. The story isn't engaging me at all as a reader. The political shenanigans are toothless. If you're going to do a story about US foreign policy, then do a story about US foreign policy. But having the CIA being shown up as being set up from the start guts the narrative. Having Silver Sable and Captain America along for the ride inadvertently shows how little of a Spider-Man story this is. But it doesn't help that Spider-Man seems to have lost his morals for the duration of this story. He hires himself out for money, he turns a blind eye to cold-blooded killers, and he passively takes a back seat to Solo simply because Solo has armour and he doesn't. So what if Solo murders people in the interim, eh, Spidey? As long as you're okay. Pleh. The finale to the assassination plot finally rolls around with issue 325. McFarlane returns to both cover and interior artistic duties, Spider-Man looks sad on the cover as Washington burns to the ground before the looming face of that noted Spider-Man villain, the Red Skull. Now, if we learned anything from Amazing Spider-Man Annual 5, it's that the Red Skull is a lousy Spider-Man villain. He's not really somebody Spider-Man can effectively fight. There's no real hand-to-hand -hand combat jeopardy, and the schemes the Red Skull normally undertakes aren't in Spider-Man's backyard at all. So I was delighted to see him turn up here, where the skull as Spider-Man villain lives down to my every expectation. In this story, finale in red, the skull offers Spider-Man a million dollars to look the other way as he goes about his affairs. And Spider-Man considers it. Yes, 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 you heard me right. Spider-Man considers taking the Red Skull's money. Spider-Man would seriously, even for a moment, consider a monetary offer, no matter for how much, from the man who murdered and burned his parents. 
I'm sorry, I just did not buy what this issue was selling. Now, there's some debate over which Red Skull this is, and the story doesn't address if this is indeed a different Red Skull to the man who killed Murray and Richard Parker. But honestly, why would the reader, who may or may not be steeped in Marvel lore, cur or even think that this is a different man when Captain America, who is clearly the same man, also featured in this issue? There's also no reason to assume Spider-Man knows it's a different man. And even if he does, why, when the briefcase of cash is offered to him, does he simply not smack it out of the skull's hand, go into a raid that the man or successor of the man who killed his parents is trying to bribe him? In fact, the deaths of his parents don't even cross his mind. He doesn't give him a first thought, let alone a second. <sighs> McFarlane's art is fine in this, ostensibly, his last issue. There's some neat text on the redacted document on page one that, if read closely, confirms McFarlane's exit, and even pokes fun at his own massive ego. The shots of Spidey are decent, but, as has been the norm for this art, there's very little Peter Parker here, and the main story isn't good enough to keep me interested. Suffice it to say, McAlini has Spider-Man be front and centre in the wrap-up of the storyline rather than a guest star, which is good, because it's a Spider-Man story. So having Spider-Man be the one that proves the US wasn't behind the death of Sankarian PM is excellent, and a good way of keeping him in the storyline, even though we, the reader, knew that all along. It was, in fact, the Red Skull, hence his showing up at the end, in case you cared. <sighs> the Skull would have gotten away with it as well, if not for that meddling wall crawler. Overall, though, I'd have to rate the assassination plot as a disappointment. What happens next is curious. Issue 326 isn't exactly a fill-in issue. David McLean is still the writer, so there is continuity in terms of plots and subplots, but it's an outlier in that Todd McFarlane is on his way out of the door, but incoming artist Eric Larson doesn't seem to be in the corridor. Instead, the art is provided by Colleen Duran and Andy Mozinski, and it's arguably one of the most dated issues of Spider-Man ever published. We open at a housewarming party, as Peter and Mary Jane celebrate the move. The dialogue is dreadful, the fashion's worse. Peter is wearing a leather vest with a string waistcoat over it. Mary Jane looks like she's going to the prom, and Flash is wearing a V-necked sweatshirt with nothing underneath, and says things like, rad and kick out the jams. He's even dating someone called Sam Booker. There is somebody wearing a Joy Division t-shirt, an inadvertent shot of good taste, but oh my god, the 80s. Subplots have been dragged back from the dead after six issues of political running around. Mary Jane is annoyed and upset that Jonathan Caesar, her very own stalker, has sent a housewarming gift. Peter tells MJ he could take care of Caesar, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and now I'm envisioning Caesar lying in the Hudson, throat stuffed with webbing. But that would be death, and that would be wrong. The party goes on until sunset, which struck me as weird. Mary Jane has parties in the afternoon. Anyway, following the completion of the party, Peter heads over to the Bugle with Flash, who is planning on being a professional boxer. Where the hell did that come from? This is weird, because the only time we've ever seen Flash box was back in issue 8, and Peter cleaned his clock. Mostly this is a spring clean issue. Dust off some old subplots, sweep in some new ones, such as the aforementioned that May's borders are leaving due to Nathan's impending death, and that Thomas Fireheart, aka Puma, has bought the Daily Bugle as part of his debt to Spider-Man. 
It's all fine, but it's not particularly memorable. Sadly, no sooner have we wrapped up one multi-issue crossover than we are caught up in a cross-company crossover. The Acts of Vengeance. Acts of Vengeance basically took the idea from an old issue of Brave and the Bold called Trade Heroes and Win. The supervillains of the Marvel comics decide that if the Rocket Racer was always getting his head handed to him by Spider-Man, then if the Rocket Racer instead took on Daredevil, well, he was sure to win, right? Right? Well... Anyway, it's in this issue that Graviton, normally an Avengers villain, takes Spider-Man on and does, in fact, win. So there's some merit to the idea. Michelini minds the inherent stupidity of Graviton levitating the Daily Bugle building to get Spider-Man's attention for some much-needed humour. But overall, it's a low-key kick-off to yet another multi-part story, after we've barely got done with the last multi-part story. Issue 327 continues the Acts of Vengeance storyline. All credit to the Omnibus for not cutting these issues out, making this a more complete collection. If you want to hear mine and my son Michael's thoughts on the Cosmic Spider-Man Acts of Vengeance storyline, go back and download Volume 2, Episodes 36 and 37 of Hey Kids Comics. This means that McFarlane's official last issue of Amazing Spider-Man was issued 328. It's still part of the Cosmic Spider-Man Acts of Vengeance storyline we covered over on Hey Kids, but it seemed odd to leave it out. Sebastian Shaw, head of the Hellfire Club, hires the Incredible Hulk at this point in his grey and mean incarnation to take out Spider-Man for a substantial amount of money. However, Spider-Man is gifted with his cosmic powers at this point, something the Hulk is unaware of. It's quite sad that this is McFarlane's swan song. Sure, he gets to unite his two most famous runs to that point, the Hulk with Spider-Man, but it's just another part in a multi-part storyline. Ultimately, McFarlane goes out with a whimper, not with a bang. Still, there's some fun to be had at the expense of Spidey's new abilities, one gag referencing the then-recent Batman movie, and another pointing out that if Spider-Man keeps flying everywhere, he's going to need a cape. McFarlane also tosses a few barbs his own way, but his self-depreciation comes across as false and insincere. The self-depreciation of a man who has an ego as large as he's believed, but wants you to think he's humble about it. The crossover itself takes away from the main event, focusing on how Peter is dealing with this cosmic-powered situation. But the issue itself, despite resolving nothing, is okay, I guess. And so, McFarlane's much ballyhooed run on The Amazing Spider-Man comes to an end. He wasn't leaving completely, of course. He'd be rewarded for his sales success with a brand new, high-end Spider-Man comic which he would write and draw. McFarlane, unshackled from Michelini, who did at least know how to temper a plot with humour, offered up grim, miserable stories, focusing on child serial killings, blood and gore, all ineptly written with competent, if inconsistent, art. It wasn't long before he departed Marvel forever, forming Image Comics and gifting the world Spawn. Ultimately, the Michelini-McFarlane run on Amazing Spider-Man is adequate, but not excellent. The normally reliable David Michelini does his best in the early part of the run, when the stories were more fun, but the more creative license McFarlane is given, the less interesting the run becomes. By the time of the assassination plot, I was just bored. It was time for McFarlane to leave. Hell, it was probably overdue. If he'd left with issue 317, the rematch with Venom, not only would that have been thematically more apt, but possibly the run would have been better for it. 
These issues still contain much that is important. The first appearance of Venom is still a watershed moment, and still commands high prices on the back-issue market. McFarlane's kinetic and vibrant style influenced the character's appearance for years to come, but with the retroactive removal of the marriage, it's hard to say how much of this even matters anymore. The fact that Peter and MJ are newlyweds is baked into a lot of these stories, so reading them as if they're just living together robs them of some of the potency. Still, there's a lot of enjoyment here, even when the parts are less than the whole. Did you know that Michael Bailey hosts a podcast? Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually. Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcasts through the dark web? Now, that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web. Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens? What are you talking about? I'm pretty much self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content Did for. you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone and also works on his shows? with potential foreign spies and anarchists? Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there. Why would you support such a man by listening to his podcast? Alright, that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't. You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into... Okay, okay, that's that's better. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on... me. The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland. Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007. And the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com, which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte, or through the Master Feed, which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify, if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up! 
Okay, okay. We've only got two emails because, as you may or may not have noticed, there has been a bit of a delay. That has not been anything to do with me, to be brutally honest with you. I have still been making and producing the episodes, but we have been migrating the site over to a new website, and this has caused some issues with the podcast feeds as they go to podcast podcatchers. Um, as I am firmly of the opinion that very few people do direct download anymore or even listen through a website, you want them conveniently located in your podcast catcher of choice on your phone or other listening device. I decided just to not release new episodes until that was all sorted out. I ultimately didn't really see the point of releasing stuff that people weren't going to hear. There was one episode released in this interim gap before we knew that the RSS feeds were a problem, and it was a episode all about some of the best Star Trek comics that DC did when they held the license. So if that sounds appealing to you, you may want to go back to the feed and see if you can find that episode. As such, I haven't been expecting there to be a lot of email, and I have been correct. Uh, Rob McCarthy has emailed in though. He Marvel's Human Fly series was supposed to be a real stuntman who crippled himself and forced himself to walk by sheer force of will. When I fired my brother, read out the pre-press. That pre-press freaks me right out as a lifelong wheelchair user. At 27, I read the series and it was really kind of strange, kind of curious what you would think. I have never read Marvel's Human Fly series, but if it crops up somewhere for cheap... I uh, will no doubt pick it up and, and give it a listen, because uh, give it a read, sorry, because I'll read any old tripe, won't I? He also said, I will always say the Sinister Six are top Spider-Man villains. No Goblin, no Chameleon, no Tinker. I'm not sure even Scorpion existed yet. No, I don't believe the Scorpion did exist when the Sinister Six storyline was first created. Anyway, as I said, not a lot of email. That about wraps it up. The email bag is empty, so if you want to email heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, feel free to do so there's more stuff coming up if i get all my ducks in a row next time will be the little scene cult classic i say classic she wolf of london everything's gonna be fine i'll see you again real soon goodbye (laughs) 